If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Known as Mrs Pankhurst's bodyguard, Kitty Marshall was a cricket ball-wielding, jiu-jitsu trained suffragette, ready to go fist-to-fist with the police in her fight for votes for women. Kitty is the subject of a new biography by Emmeline Godfrey, who I spoke to to find out more about Kitty's unorthodox life and the tense game of cat and mouse that the police and the suffragettes were locked in. So hi, Emmeline. Welcome to History Extra. You're talking today about your new book, Mrs. Pankhurst Bodyguard, which is a biography of the titular Pankhurst Bodyguard, suffragette Kitty Marshall. So introduce us to Kitty. What makes her such a fascinating figure? Oh, she is so energetic. You know, when I first encountered her autobiography at the Museum of London, it was in this great big folder. And I just read like one car chase after another. I just thought, oh, wow, you know, this woman, she really needs a book to herself. And, you know, she actually titled it Suffragette Escapes and Adventures. And I thought this kind of needs elaboration. And just the way she writes as well, she has these exclamation marks and, you know, we were flying hell for leather down the road and, you know, the police car's chasing us. And I thought this is, this is brilliant stuff. So you've encountered an autobiography called Suffragettes Escapes and Adventures, which is, an, as you say, an amazing title. What were some of those escapes and adventures? Oh, well, one of my favourite ones that I love is uh, the Battle of Glebe Place. And that's in 1914. This was in West London. And it's a lovely quaint street, which is where artists lived and they had their studios. And it's not the kind of place that you'd think would suddenly host this massive suffragette fight in the street. But uh, there's a lady called Gladys Schutze, and she was also a novelist, and she was a friend of the Pankhursts. And she lent her house to Mrs. Pankhurst because she wasn't allowed to speak in public at that time because nobody would rent their holes out to the suffragettes. So she gave her her balcony, and Mrs. Pankhurst appeared, and she sort of said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here despite everything, and I'm going to speak up for women. And then you had all these police officers standing just right underneath the balcony. It's literally about a hand or so away from, you know, the helmets were there and Mrs. Pankhurst were there and the police were after her. She was meant to be in jail and she was like taunting them, you know, go and arrest me if you, th- if you think you can. Uh, so they're all standing underneath, including one of the men that I'm writing about called uh, Ralph Kitchener. So that's also his autobiography as well. And he was on the outside and Kitty Marshall was on the inside and she was preparing all her equipment and getting ready to defend Mrs. P. So then Mrs. P comes out, you know, and there's this great big sort of fight and it's like, oh, okay, did Mrs. P actually, did did she escape or not? 
but Mrs P went back into the house again and everyone's like where is she and the police are sort of chasing all these other alternative cars and people dressed as Mrs P and then eventually she manages to escape the next day. But uh, I just thought it was a great atmosphere because there was even this discussion about whether or not the people inside should use a water hose to try and keep the police back. <laughs> so they employ every kind of weapon. <laughs> I think that's something that's so exciting about the suffragette story. It's all these kind of capers, this these chases with the police, provoking them and then running away. But before we delve into some more of that, can we go right back to the beginning of Kitty's story? What do we know about her background and how it influenced her decision to become a suffragette in the first place? She was born in 1870 uh, in West Houghton in Lancashire and her father was a local minister in the area and her mum was very active in sort of working with the community, charitable works. So they were very, very socially aware and possibly politically active as well. And so Kitty really learned a lot about how to, you know, look after other people and to care for others around her and to speak up for the community. And then in the 1890s, she married Hugh Finch and he's like, bit of a villain. He actually looks like the archetypal Victorian villain with the moustache and everything. She married a Hugh Finch locally and his family were closely connected to her own. Uh, his father was a minister as well. And actually his father was in fact the presiding minister over the, the marriage. So you really had this idea that it was this great family expectation that, you know, this was a this was a good match. But unfortunately, although Hugh looked great on paper, he was a medical student, you know, physically fit, you know, active in sports, something went really quite badly wrong in the marriage to the point where in the early 1900s, they both got a divorce. And I mean, it was really quite a difficult thing at the time for a woman to stand up in a court filled with men to petition for a divorce. And she did so on the basis of, it was an act of cruelty. So basically he had given her a venereal disease. And this was quite shocking to see this in, in, in the divorce documents. The actual divorce went through pretty quickly. I think the judge was very sympathetic. And Hugh was also unfaithful to her as well. So they had evidence of all the, you know, the, the people that he met and where he met them and the hotels and the, the document is quite sort of quite revealing but not long after she met Arthur Marshall and he was really going to be her rock her personal and and, and also her political and social kind of rock uh, when she was campaigning in the women's suffrage movement. So how did Kitty become involved in the suffrage movement? Like many suffragettes, when they became involved, they heard speakers. And she doesn't actually say talk about her very, very earliest impressions. Uh, she talks mainly about, you know, sort of going down the street with placards and, and, and sandwich boards and, um, and, and protesting and those kind of things. But she would start to become more involved. The documents suggest around about between either 1906, when there was a great big uh, suffragette dinner, there was a Mrs. Marshall who was actually depicted on the guest list. I'm not sure if that was her or not, so I actually left that out of the book. So I kind of talk about her early activities around about 1909, and they had what was called the 108 Deputation, which was a deputation to Parliament where 108 women were arrested, and it was in the spring of 1909. And um, she, along with a small group of women, walked in this resplendent sunset to the Houses of Parliament, and she got into this 
some kind of scrum or a fight on a, on one of the uh, islands, like the Houses of Parliament, and she ended up sort of gripping the um, <laughs> the clothing of one of the officers and trying to get the whistle off him. And then Arthur, who was very supportive with her in all of her campaigns, he was actually desperately trying to figure out where she was, and he was asking people around, and he could hear this like drum and fife band playing, and so you know, where's my wife? Where's where's Mrs. Marshall? He found her on this island, and you know, he managed to sort of um, calm the situation, but they still did still have to arrest Kitty for sake of form, the fact that she was trying to grab this whistle off him. Mm. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT and NBA TV. So in the title of your book, you've called Kitty Mrs. Pankhurst's bodyguard. Can you tell us a bit about the connections between Kitty and the Pankhursts, who obviously were the, the leading figures of the suffragette movement? I should first say something about the title. The reason I actually said Mrs. Pankhurst and not Emmeline Pankhurst because there's a very early interview with her in America and she said she doesn't like it when people refer to her by her first name. She thinks it's really quite a personal thing and one should refer to her by her surname. So I thought, you know what, I'm actually just going to do that because I think that's what Mrs. P would have wanted. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the Pankhurst, what was interesting was in the 19th century, there were many attempts to petition to Parliament in a peaceful way uh, to convince ministers that it would be a good idea to give women the vote and especially when there was one reform act after another enfranchising one group after another of men and there were one or two loopholes where you actually had a couple of women who managed to get a vote in there but then you know these loopholes were discovered and you know closed over again and this is always this idea that you know women however clever, influential, doesn't matter how much potential they had for changing society, they still did not have that parliamentary voice. Uh, and so you had the suffragists throughout the 19th century and beyond campaigning in a more peaceful way with you know, petitions to parliament, influencing politicians through you know, tea parties. And these are actually quite powerhouses for debate as well. Women would get together and, and you know, have these social events. And the suffragettes too were very much into these um, kind of fundraising events too, so also interested in peaceful methods. So anyway, Mrs P, she came along uh, in 1903 and said, right, we actually need to do something about this because this is clearly not getting anywhere uh, and we need to have a more direct way of making this you know, a kind of issue in the public face, if you like. So in 1903, she formed the Women's Social and Political Union, sometimes called Wispoo. <laughs> so if I if refer to it as Wispoo, rather than the WSPU, which we think they called it the Wispoo at the time. And it was a very small group of women uh, in Manchester. And then eventually they, they moved their headquarters down to London. And that's when Mrs P and Kitty started to become friends. And I thought it was really interesting because they had a personal connection in that both of their husbands, Mrs Pankhurst's husband, had been a lawyer, uh, as well as, as Kitty's husband too. And they had that Manchester-Lancashire connection, a place that was very politically aware. And obviously the personal connection to him and Kitty was extremely loyal to Mrs P from the very beginning of their friendship right up until her death and beyond. I mean, she was responsible for putting the statue up in Victoria Tower Gardens that we see today. That statue that in 2018, when there was the great anniversary of Votes for Women, 
that you know people collected around that was as a result of Ketty's perseverance because you had a lot of government ministers who said oh yeah but do we really want it cited there and do we really need it and actually do we want something you know dedicated to these rebellious women and and anyway the Latin inscription you've put in is actually incorrect you know they tried to kind of do down every part of the project and Kitty you know was determined to put this through so I think it's down to her that we have that there. So Kitty was clearly an avid supporter of Mrs Pankhurst but why have you called her her bodyguard? Why did she earn that title? Well, that's the other thing too. She was a close friend throughout her life, but she protected Mrs. Pankhurst both physically, which I'll get into a second, from the police, but also she protected her reputation. So, for instance, in the 1920s, when in the newspaper the, the news hit that Sylvia Pankhurst had a child out of wedlock and Mrs. Pankhurst, she felt really scandalised by the whole thing, you know, oh, how dare Sylvia do such a thing? Especially when you read about the fact that Mrs. P, she never met her own grandchild. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is just so sad. But, you know, Kitty offered her a place to go um, her Ongor house which is um, Ongor is, is in Essex just outside the, the central line network and that's the place that she offered her as a sanctuary from all the, the media frenzy around Sylvia Pankhurst but the time we're looking at, the suffragette time, she was also her personal bodyguard. So she actually learnt how to not only protect herself by wearing cardboard armour. In 1909, the 108 deputation, that's actually the first time she got to use this cardboard armour that she put it underneath her clothing. And then after the confrontations, the police would take off the armour and it's just bits of cardboard would just go everywhere. It's a real mess. <laughs> but so she had this armour that she was wearing. And then also she protected Mrs P when she was was wanted. The police were after her to, to see out a three-year jail sentence. Mrs P was on the run from one house to the other and Kitty, she was trained in martial arts to protect Mrs Pankhurst and uh, she, you know, she learned Japanese jiu-jitsu uh, which is interesting because she wasn't massively into sports and she wasn't much of a walker um, and, but it does seem that you know she was interested in things like cricket. In fact she actually threw a cricket ball at one of the cabinet minister's windows. That that was the last time that she was actually arrested. I have to ask you more about jiu-jitsu. I think a lot of people listening will be imagining, you know, the suffragettes in their long dresses and their, their hats and think, wait, hold on a minute, jiu-jitsu, martial arts, what is going on here? Can you tell us about how the suffragettes learned jiu-jitsu? Well, in order to discuss that, I need to go back a few years just to the very, very beginning of the 20th century. There's a man called Edward William Barton Wright, and he brought Japanese martial arts over from Japan, really popularised it. Some people had been aware of Japanese martial arts, but he was the one who actually wrote newspaper articles about it. In fact, he coined his own martial art called Bartitsu, which is actually mentioned in the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. It's actually in The Adventure of the Empty House of 1903. Because we think that Moriarty uh, killed Sherlock Holmes off at the Reichenbach Falls. But actually, he comes back from the dead, as it were, Sherlock Holmes, and he says, I use this martial art, this Japanese martial art called Baritsu, or Baritsu as it was misspelled. It really took off. So Barton Wright created these studios and these places where he had all these experts from around the world, and they would teach uh, men self-defense, women self-defense. And in fact, William Garrod was one of these pupils of Sadakazi Uganishi, who was one of the Japanese practitioners of martial arts who came over from Japan to work with Barton Wright. And he taught William Garrod. And importantly, William Garrod taught Edith Garrod, his wife, uh, jiu-jitsu. And she taught the women and the children. And then she became like this 
powerhouse figure in the women's suffrage movement. So before the bodyguard started using Japanese martial arts, Mrs. Garrett, or Madame Garrett, as she liked to be called, was actually giving suffragettes or, or any woman who would like lessons, you know, in self-defense, she was giving these lessons in her London dojos. Uh, and she was appearing in the press, actually throwing policemen over her shoulder and all this kind of stuff. So she was raising public consciousness to the idea that women could do this. So rather than being asked by the police to, you know, move along now, dear, you're causing an obstruction. Mrs. Garrett said, no, you are causing the obstruction. <laughs> and she would actually, you know, throw them to the ground. So it was actually really kind of fascinating to see the development of this before the bodyguard came along and was actually, they, they used this as one of part of their weapons along with the use of the Indian club, which she also taught at her London dojos too. I think what's really fascinating about this is that it seems so weird and kind of wacky and wonderful that the suffragettes learned jujitsu. But I guess it's important to say that there were reasons why they decided to learn self-defence and martial arts, weren't there? Because I wonder if you could tell us about some of the the dangers they faced and some of the hostility they faced and why they felt that it was necessary to learn martial arts. But yeah, well, one of the key darkest events in the suffragette campaign was Black Friday, 1910. That was the 18th of November. And Kitty was actually there, although interestingly, her autobiography says nothing about it. It was almost like it was so traumatic that she just didn't want to put it in there because you had these instances of women being, you know, groped and manhandled and taken down, you know, alleyways and goodness knows what happening. And there was actually statements taken afterwards of the women's experiences Winston Churchill's like, oh, we're not going to launch a government inquiry into this. Just release all the arrested women. You know, don't give them space to actually air their grievances and tell the public what happened. There was this attempt to silence as well. And there were also officers who were brought in from other divisions too, who had dealt with other types of hardened criminals and they hadn't come across suffragettes before. So the, the whole lot, all of these people being thrown in outside the Houses of Parliament, I mean, it was just a complete disaster. So after that point, Mrs. Pankhurst decided, well, you know what, women's bodies should not take the brunt of this campaign. We're going to smash damage property instead. So there's the argument of the broken pane, hence Kitty's cricket ball <laughs> being used to smash the windows instead. So that was one of the reasons why women needed the martial arts. And, and just just even the I, the image of a woman who would actually stand up to a police officer who was, you know, they're quite a lot taller than them. I mean, five foot eight or six or, or just beyond six foot uh, for the City of London police. Uh, and also what's really interesting to note is that the uh, police officers themselves were being trained in jiu-jitsu. So you had actually demonstrations in the City of London of this martial art for the officers. And increasingly, the police handbook was actually saying, well, this is the kind of move you can do and this and this and this. So um, it was very much, you know, we have to learn martial arts for our own self-defense because this is what the police are using. So we've got to, we have no choice of this one now. It would be quite easy to make the police into the villains of this piece. But interestingly, though, you have also looked at the autobiography of Detective Ralph Kitchener. Can you tell us a bit about him and what he tells us about police perspectives of the suffragettes? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was absolutely fascinating. You know, it was a complete accident that I managed to get 
a hold of this autobiography because I was reading it was a secondary source and somebody mentioned you know memoirs of a detective and it was really difficult to find and I finally got a copy in Cambridge Library and it was in deep storage and I just copied the whole thing and took it home and then by chance because I'm involved in the Police History Society somebody put me in touch with a historian who then said oh yes I know his granddaughter <laughs> I was like why oh my god this is really really exciting so uh, so we met up we met up at National Trust property and she she brought the original autobiography along which was I mean I'd, I'd just seen a pale imitation of it in Cambridge Library but the actual one itself the original one he was beautifully presented because Ralph Kitchener he was very very ambitious he he liked to present everything correctly he liked to in his, his autobiography unlike Kitty's which is absolutely all over the place and it was like written in a frenzy Ralph Kitchener's is beautifully presented beautifully headed you know I, there are no typos and just to see the actual bits that had been taken out by the editor from you know the the copy that I saw in the library it was really illuminating there were two whole sections that were taken out about issues that women had with clothing at the time so you had for instance these long skirts you talked about uh, jiu-jitsu and what must that have been like with the long skirts and he actually talks about one woman who was being observed by the police and suddenly you know she crosses the road and suddenly all her underwear just comes off all over the street and she just goes okay that that's not mine and just walks off and then he sort of sees that there's, there's this street cleaner and he just puts it away but again it's those interesting kind of wardrobe mishaps because you think well all the stuff they had to wear and all the what the decoys had to wear as well and all the changes of clothing and the speedy changes of clothing something must have gone wrong at some point so there's a lovely little piece there but that was taken out in the bit that you actually read in the Cambridge Library so for me it was great to see the original one because he actually typed it up himself and he dedicated it to his granddaughter Jan and he actually wrote because you asked for it <laughs> <laughs> and how would you characterize in general the police's attitude to the suffragettes were they really hostile were they mocking were some of them at all sympathetic I think, yeah, I saw a lot of sympathetic attitudes. I did see some negative ones as well. I mean, there was one of the autobiographies I looked at and he said, oh, you know, the, all that, the nightmare that those women caused for just for that vote. And now, you know, they have it. They're not even using it. That's so annoying. You did have people actually saying that. But Ralph Kitchener, he had what I liked as well about him. He had a real respect for the suffragettes. I mean, he, he had understandings with them. So, for instance, Flora Drummond was a key figure in the Wispoo and he was taking taking notes of her speeches just to see if she was saying anything that you know she that she needed to be arrested for and at the end of it she said I was careful you didn't get anything down did you Detective Kitchener and they knew each other and you know they just had this understanding and again you know decades later there was a um, a party where Inspector Jarvis, who was one of the key officers arresting the women, and he had a very friendly understanding with them, he was actually invited to a dinner with Flora Drummond, and they had a drink together. And, you know, decades afterwards, they could sit down in a room and go, you know, those were crazy times, but we're all here together having having a good time. Well, obviously, it wasn't always like that, but that was certainly a contrast to, you know, the depiction of Black Friday. And often when you see this, even today in films or novels, it's always police against against the women and there's nothing in between but you did have a lot of respect from the police uh the autobiographies I looked at certainly Ralph Kitchener to what the women were trying to do and it's just literally as he said and others you know they were on the wrong side of the law and it was just the police's duty to arrest them and that was all. 
A key factor that determined the relationship between the suffragettes and the police was something called the Cat and Mouse Act. Can you explain what that was and, and what it meant for their interactions? There were a number of suffragettes who were hunger-striking in jail and this was causing the government a real public relations campaign problem uh, because they didn't want martyrs being created in jail and the women were coming out and they were extremely ill. Mrs Pankhurst herself, you know, at one point she had to be wheeled off the stage in need for a, of a blood transfusion. I mean, it was getting really desperate. So the Home Secretary Reginald McKenna, who was actually a neighbour of Kitty's, would you believe, he passed what's called the Prisoner's Tempered Discharge for Ill Health Act 1913. And it was actually dubbed the Cat and Mouse Act. And the reason why was because it was just so ridiculous. And in fact, even Ralph Kitchener himself, he was tasked with implementing this. He said, well, this is ridiculous because the women, they were, you know, intelligent and clever. And the last thing they were going to want to do is have to go back to jail again. And this it was all set up on this premise. So women would be released to hunger striking in jail, released for around about two weeks. Uh, and then eventually when a medical inspector thought they were well enough to go back to jail to see out the rest of their sentences, then they would be clawed back to jail again, like the cat claws the mice back and then releases and then back. And you can just see this pattern going on and on again. And Mrs. Pankhurst, this obviously happened with her. She was just getting iller and iller. So the Cat and Mouse Act, it was very difficult to implement because, as Ralph Kitchener was saying, the women, you know, they would say, well, I'm going to stay at X place, and then they would move on secretly, and then would move on again. And various members of the bodyguard were just great at shirking the police, and people would give them their houses to hide in. So you actually had them, you know, women dressing up, pretending to be wives of husbands of sympathisers, or even at one point, one of them dressed up as, as a 10-year-old boy, because she was very, very small and you know they would just go from one house to the next and just evade police capture. So how do you think that all this drama, this excitement, the escapes and adventures that Kitty wrote about in her autobiography, how do you think that all of that shaped her her life after the suffragette movement? Well I think she really did see that as a big high point in her life and when she was writing her autobiography in 1947 she was composing that together with her friend Rachel Barrett who was also influential in the suffragette campaign. She was one of the key organisers and she was also working on the suffragette magazine when it was banned so she had a lot of experience at working at something in great haste and obviously Kitty's manuscript does look like it was written very very quickly so the two of them although politically they were at odds Kitty was more conservative Rachel Barrett was active in the in, in the labour movement you know the two of them had this friendship that went on for, for decades you know afterwards to create this autobiography of 1947 and and she helped Kitty write the autobiography. And Kitty was actually at death's door at this point. She was very, very ill. So I think that's another reason why it was written so quickly. Rachel tried to get a publisher for it too, uh, which unfortunately didn't succeed. So it kind of told me that it would be really nice for Kitty to actually finally have that book out. <laughs> and again, for Ralph Kitchen to have a book on him because he actually had written up the memoirs and then said to the member of the, the, the Met Police, uh, he actually said, well, here's my memoir, do with it what you want. And it's almost like, you know, the two of them just needed their story told. And this was a great context in which to do it because they met each other on, you know, a few occasions, whether that was across a courtroom or whether that was in the Battle of Glebe Place of 1914 on a, on a, on a drizzly February <laughs> Saturday afternoon. 
So all these years on, how do you think that we should look back on the two sides of this story, the suffragette movement on the one hand and the police who were taking them on on the other? I think it's, it's interesting because, you know, nowadays, obviously, we have the vote. And I think what's useful is to kind of look at how frustrating it must have been for women not to have had that voice. Nowadays, you know, most women we have the vote now. You can't see how frustrating that would have been. And again, just to also see that there were many men, such as the police officers, who really did support them. But unfortunately, because the nature of their jobs, they had to arrest them. Ralph Kitchener did actually wish them well. It would be interesting to just have the police a little bit more represented in suffragette, both, you know, historiography as well as the presentation in, in culture too. I mean, I think that's something that I would like to see a bit more. That was Emmeline Godfrey. Her book, Mrs Pankhurst's Bodyguard, is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.